To your congregation, I greet you in the name of our Lord Christ, Lord Christ Jesus. It is a privilege to be with you. That, of course, is an understatement. Always grateful when I get that text from Brother Zuck, and I thank you for that. I will call your attention this morning to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18. I don't know for your part, but it's encouraging to me to see how God orchestrates things together in ways that we would not ordinarily have anticipated them sorting out. I think of the themes that came up in Sunday school this morning, the themes already expressed this morning, and thought, did word travel that fast when I was bringing here? Because I'm seeing a lot of parallels. It's kind of neat to see. I mean, word traveled through here like in a small community. Or it could just chalk it up as God orchestrated this, right? First Kings chapter 18. This is going to be a somewhat rather large text that we're reading this morning, but we'll be focusing in on this smaller section. So let's begin then in, in verse one. May I start with saying what a, a marvelous declaration made in song this morning, wasn't it? Extolling our majestic Lord and King. God is supreme. It's our happy privilege to to announce that to each other, to remind ourselves. First Kings 18, verse one. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now, the famine was severe in Samaria and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, is it you, my Lord, Elijah? And he said, answering him, it is I go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord, your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say. He's not here. He would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. 
So Ahab sent to all the peoples of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered it is well spoken. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for your many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of wood. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Amen. Our worldview, dear church, is significant. What is a worldview? In plain speak, your worldview is the way that you view the world around you. The way that you interpret what happens around you. What is your starting premise? For example, is your starting premise that the Lord God is? Or is your starting premise that all that is is the 
final result of a random series of events. Well, your worldview is the foundation which fuels the fullness of your life. If I believe, for example, that God is, and that is the God of the Bible, then I'm going to care what he thinks about things, and I'm going to have an interest in doing things his way, and therefore it's going to lead me to his word where he's carefully spelled out what he wishes us to know about himself and the job that he has for us, his people. Because apart from scripture, I would know nothing about who this God is other than he created all that is, which Romans reminds us. I would not know that I have a sin problem. I would not know that God has furnished a solution. I would not know the means of obtaining that solution. And I would not know that there is such a thing called the church. I would not know what this church is supposed to do. I would not know what the future will bring. But in fact, he has furnished all of this for us. Your worldview is significant. It will determine the way you view this life. Do we view this life as just one, one consecutive problem after another? Or will we understand that God has something that he is accomplishing, sometimes in spite of what we see and sometimes through what we see? We understand he does bring calamity. Scripture says that. We're reminded in Isaiah that God says, behold, I have refined you through the furnace of affliction. Sometimes affliction is exactly what we need. It does not necessarily the result of bad behavior. And so therefore a discipline. Sometimes it's simply to purge us of this worldliness that we still have within us. We've not been made perfect yet, brothers. We are not in glory. Therefore, we still have remaining sin to be dealt with. John assumes that as much when he says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. He knows we still have it. We're not there yet. So God works through this life. How do we view this life? Is this one dismal endurance or do we view it as God accomplishing his purpose, even in the face of some great wickedness? What is our worldview? Do we see God as ultimately necessary to hold together all that is? Well, isn't that what we see in Colossians? It says that the Lord Christ is the one who affected creation and by him all things hold together. Our worldview matters. What we believe about something informs whether we value it and so how we treat it and the degree of attention we give to it. Whether we're speaking of a family member, a holiday, our work ethic or each Lord's Day activities, what we believe about something determines our attitudes about it and our attitude about something determines how we act towards it. So what will we have inform our worldview? Ever-changing cultural whims? Bereft of love for Christ? Or would we have God's word inform us how to live? For believers, it's to be God's word alone. What our forefathers referred to as sola scriptura, scripture alone. We have our traditions and there's nothing wrong with that. Why do we budget what we do this year and look at what we did last year as a guide? There's nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, Scripture is to be our only inspired, infallible guide. Every word in it, completely trustworthy and true, because it came from the mouth of God. All Scripture is God-breathed, we're told. Is it not? Spiritually speaking, we understand that having received new life in Christ, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who quite truly does make all things new. This is what we see 
In Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has passed and old has become new. The new has come. Being in Christ means that the totality of our life is now under new ownership. And we have a correspondingly entirely new manner of life that we are called to and belief to which we've been called. This naturally extends to and directly includes all of what it means to worship. We are not at liberty to come and just do whatever novel thing we think is a great idea. But instead to render render to God the worship he is not only due, but that which he requires. He has a way of doing things and his way is perfect. It cannot be improved on. You recall Nadab and Abihu. They did not practice according to God's plan. He consumed them in a, in a flash of fury. Now, that word worship derives from Old English. Worthship. Which means to worship, to honor, to ascribe worth to something. Think for a moment then how we treat very differently an emerald and a discarded paint can. We ascribe value to the one and not to the other. How about the Lord God himself? Our behavior and our activities during a Sunday morning worship service, for example, show our attitudes and degree of value ascribing to the occasion and the God of it. Consider for a moment our activities even this morning. It appears to me that we cannot know one another's heart. We have observed people having carefully crafted our service. The message has been profound so far. Truly, we, have a, we are among a people who holds the Lord God as holy. And this occasion is sacred. His name has been magnified. This is what we see happening in an exaggerated way in our text this morning. This this matter of worship. In our text this morning, we enter as Elijah is about to confront his enemy, Ahab. A rather ungodly king. Idolatrous paganism. There's an understatement. Was rampant, particularly expressed through the worship of Baal. Contrasted with scripture's commands for God's people, Baal worship was particularly vile, wicked. One source describes it this way. Adults would gather around the altar of Baal. Infants would then be burned alive as a sacrificial offering to this deity. Horrific, ghastly, repugnant. These words understated. What a sick twisting and distortion occurs when Satan gets a hold of what God has created to be good. A reversal of all that God created and declared to be very good. We notice in our text this morning, we're going to be focusing on verses 19 through 40, particularly verse 20. But for a, for a little context to continue the sentence, we're going to pick up in verse 19. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now. 
There's a lot happening right here. Elijah has just described why God sent the drought. You'll notice first Ahab accuses him. Sort of like a, yes, you are. No, I'm not. You are. But Elijah spells out why in verse 18. Here's the problem. He answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. There's the problem. Abandonment of the Lord's commands. You'll recall in Deuteronomy 6, 4, where we're reminded here, O Israel, the Lord, our Lord is one. We're reminded in that text as the verses follow. There was great responsibility parents have to train their children in verbiage we hear later is in the, uh, the fear and admonition of the Lord. We're to take every occasion. Think of this as 24-7 spiritual home ec. The sort of thing we're to do with our kids, are we not? From the time that we rise up till the time we lay them down at bed, everything that we say and that we do should be a constant reminder to them that the Lord, he is God. We trust in and love him. He is everything that we, are, that, that we need. Apart from him, we can do nothing. The Lord, he is good. And we're to live in light of that reality. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live it, isn't it? Talk can be cheap. It doesn't cost much. But are we willing to risk our life? On a belief. I can tell my children that the Lord God, he is sovereign. He is he is happy on his throne, a deeply satisfied God. But it's quite another thing than for me to start to worry about things. And what I'm showing them is that, well, maybe he's not really in control after all. Maybe this worrying is going to do a little something. Gary Enrig says this, the nation's problem was not lack of rain, but lack of loyalty and obedience to God. Their sin and rebellion had drawn the divine judgment. That's what these people were experiencing. In a direct challenge to this, driven by a true righteous indignation, Elijah is calling Ahab to a virtual duel. 850 pagan so-called prophets versus God himself. Looks like those scales were tipped a bit. But not really in their favor. Next, Elijah addresses the people much as you may recall Joshua having done in Joshua twenty four fifteen. Recall that. Choose you this day whom you'll serve. As for me and my house, you know what we're going to do? We are going to serve the Lord. Now, who's he talking to? To a pagan people? No. He's talking to a people of God's own possession who in some pretty nasty circumstances over time had caved, they'd capitulated to their environment, and they seemed to have forgotten their first love. And then experiencing the very unsavory consequences of it. And so he's calling them on the carpet. What are you going to do? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to serve the Lord. And we see Elijah doing essentially the same thing here with the with the Jewish people telling them, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Now, it's recognized this is a difficult verse to translate. However, <clears throat> one understanding is that he's appealing to the what, what he described as the, the gyrations, the the manner of uh, these worshipers around their altar that call it their dancing or what have you. Bit of a, a word picture he's got going on. How long are you going to try to straddle that fence? 
Jesus put it this way, in case there's any ambiguity elsewhere, in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which translates as both money and possessions. Whatever it is, you can't serve two masters. If you want to appeal to a film, think Lord of the Rings when Gandalf says there's only one Lord of the Ring and he doesn't share power. The implication is plain, don't you think? There's God's way and there's everything else. You can't have it both ways. And that's what he's calling these people to here. They had rolled over and they had descended into the dregs of worship. See, worship is not unique to Christianity by any stretch. To say that one worships does not imply by any stretch of the imagination that we're speaking about Christian matters. We're speaking about just broadly religious matters. Now, Scripture is not afraid of the word worship. We understand from James that true religion is this, that we care for widows and orphans and their needs. There's nothing wrong with the word religion. Sometimes we'll fancy ourselves to say, well, religion is man seeking God. Christianity is God seeking man. Okay, whatever. The Bible is okay with religion, so long as we uh, define it, right? But worship is done by both Christians and pagans alike. Think Druids. Think ancient Roman culture. Think Hawaiians. We tend to think of idolatry when we think of false religions. An idol doesn't have to be a tiki, a totem, a a hunk of rock. It doesn't matter what it is. An idol is anything that takes up your time, energy, and affection and, and is a replacement for the Lord God himself. It's any substitution for God. It can be a job. It can be a person. It can be a thing. It doesn't make any difference. Where does your affection lie? Are you consumed with Christ or with something other than that defines your God? Elijah is also calling these people on the carpet. What's it going to be? You can't keep straddling the fence. If God is the one true God, follow him. And otherwise, go with Baal. And this is where it's going to come to a showdown. Plainly, Enric continues. He says, Elijah's message was clear. The people were trying to hold together two mutually exclusive loyalties. It's part of what Jesus meant when he said, you cannot serve two masters. Well, notice their indecisive silence in verse 20. After all that he said. um, Oh, verse 21, I'm sorry. And the people did not answer him a word. What's more, Elijah is essentially standing alone. That's what he says. I even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. There may have been some other true prophets, but they were hiding in caves. Elijah is acknowledging I'm the only one front and center here. Who's in a position of being destroyed if things go south. The others are hiding out. Now, we understand historically there has been occasion where God's people have had to go into hiding for fear of life and limb. We understand that. This happens to be an example that God used where he is front and center as his spokesman and he can do no other. Notice now in verse 23 through 26. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. That's where the test is going to come. We're going to have a burnt sacrifice, but you don't get to use fire. 
And I'm going to prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God. I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he's God. And all the people answered it as well spoken. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bolt, prepare it first for you or many. (laughs) Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal for morning. Until noon. Stop. Elijah had two bulls brought. This is his his great test here. Visual aid. (laughs) It's going to be hard to uh, misunderstand the outcome of this one, right? There's two bulls brought, one for God, one for Baal. His instructions were simple and plain. We're each going to call on our deity and whichever one answers by consuming fire will show himself to be the one and only true God. I expect at that moment both sides were very confident. But what we see in verse 24 is that this test was agreeable to the people, though they haven't yet said who they favor. They might have agreed to the terms and they're still thinking that Baal's got this one in that. Elijah then deferred to Baal's prophets. Here, go first. Go first. Verse 26b. And they had called from morning to noon, Baal's, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, we wish to be polite and gratuitous and not necessarily laugh at another's calamity, but there is a time when we see the absurdity of what's happening. And this is one of those occasions. The Lord God had, received, had revealed himself plainly. In fact, Paul reminds us in Romans that it's been, God has so plainly revealed himself that mankind is without excuse. Creation declares that the Lord God is. Man has no excuse. Whatever his claim of ignorance is, it's insufficient, it's inadequate, it's unacceptable because God says so, but because of creation itself declaring who God is. It says that which can be known about God has been made plain since creation. It's been quipped. That it takes more faith to be an atheist than to be a Christian. Certainly would. The gymnastics one has to engage in to get around God is phenomenal. I may say ridiculous. Here we see that the Baal worshippers exemplified sincerity. True devotion. Commitment, faith, just to say that somebody is a person of faith does not say that they're any closer to Christ than Joe atheist doesn't make any difference if you have faith or how sincere you are. We can be sincerely wrong, can't we see it every day, even in ourselves. I have faith. Well, good for you. But in what? 
In what? Obviously, these qualities are not the hallmark of being a Christian. We should have them, but they do not equal Christian. They just simply equal religious. There's no end of false religions. Through this whole episode, we are soberly reminded that the sum and substance of true saving faith has to do with the object of our faith. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Not because I prayed a prayer, not because I walked in aisle, not because I signed a card, not because I wept over my sins, not because of any other reason. But I know that I'm a Christian because the Bible. Well, it affirms whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I did that. It's not about me or my decision. It's somehow inbred in us, isn't it, that we want to claim the credit at every turn. I did this. I did that. Well, I prayed that prayer. Well, good for you. But to whom? And how do you know that he heard you? Under what obligation is he? About whom are we speaking? It matters. Having faith. Being sincere, being committed, those are fine qualities. But they're ultimately (laughs) inadequate. It's the object of our faith. Rather than any other characteristics we demonstrate, for whether Christian or pagan, we can both demonstrate sincerity, devotion, commitment, and faith. In a stroke of holy, righteous anger at the brazen idolatry before him, Elijah engages in some very sharp sarcasm and mockery, as we see in verse 27. He is. He pulls no punches. Surely they felt the sting of what he was saying. J. Gary Myler says this, the effect is to demonstrate the utter foolishness of even Israel in abandoning her God, Yahweh, for such a non-God as this. You can almost understand a pagan. But Israel? Surely we can have an idea of the fury that that Elijah felt. God's own people. You recall even Jesus saying to his disciples, have you been with me for so long and you still don't get this? Show it to you and you'll believe. Where have you been? What do you call the miracles? What do you call the healings? And you still want a sign? Guess what? No more sign will be given save that of Jonah. I'm done. You can almost sense the frustration even in Christ's own voice in the text. And Elijah here is is no less frustrated with these people. You've got the Pentateuch for crying out loud. And look what you're doing. Even this morning, our class very soberly acknowledged this falling away that we see in the Western church. Have you observed it? It's troubling, isn't it? People... Who by their own admission have trust in the Lord Christ. So they would say, not mine to say, to have abandoned him for non-reason. 
how can anyone who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good abandon? Of course, if we're if we're fair, we would acknowledge that Peter's denial of Christ was not unique to himself. But let's also acknowledge the response of a true repentant believer. All right. There's no believer worth his salt that would say that he's sinless. I've heard people claim it. They don't like to stand on. It's one thing to sin. It's another thing to sin and be broken by it. What do we read that happened to Peter after he denied Christ, but that he wept bitterly? That is the testimony of someone who is truly in Christ. The Bible never says that his own people will stop sinning this side of glory. But we understand that when we do sin, there is a mediator. And if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sin. What do you do with your sin and your guilt? Do you make like it's not there? Or do you take it to someone like Jesus Christ? These people should have known better. I submit to you that they did. And yet, in hard-heartedness, went along with the crowd. We understand that in this culture, to have affiliated with Baal was a, was a good business move. State-sanctioned. State-run churches have never gone well, have they? Well, in desperation to get Baal's attention, the prophet worshippers engaged in self-mutilation, apparently not unusual to their form of worship. And yet, we'll also notice in Deuteronomy 14, one is expressly forbidden by God. These people knew better. They had the Pentateuch. As was inevitable, we see in verse 29 that no one answered, no one paid attention. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 44. We'll see what God thinks of all this. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 through 20. got a new Bible with nice large print, but I have no tabs. I'm still learning it. It's nice to be able to read it. It just takes a while to get there. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. 
He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes a fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and worms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire and over the half he eats meat. He roasted and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. They know not. Nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say half of it. I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He's made his own God and he's going to then kneel down and worship it. What we find elsewhere in the same book of Isaiah is God's open hostility towards such ludicrous behavior. Literally as dumb as a rock. It can't see, it can't hear, it can't speak, it can't do a thing for you. You've made it, you're going to set it there and that's your God. You created your God. That's backwards. But is that not what we see Satan do with God's good creation? He twists things and reverses it. Well, notice then Romans chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18. The craftsmen of Isaiah 44 thought what he did was a great idea. Now let's see God's response to this. In Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In this dear congregation is God's assessment of natural man. This is not necessarily a Hitler. But this is an unregenerate person. I'm not that bad. You bet you are. You have the capacity within you to all of this, according to God himself. Let's not flatter ourselves. God does not simply improve us when he saves us. He converts us from spiritual death to life. From the grave to glory. He works a miracle in us, converting us radically, pervasively. And that's what Paul means when he says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are a new creation. This is not giving us a spiritual facelift, but what we get from the word, which gives us the word metamorphosis, is as we are a completely new species of being. We've not been improved. We've been remade. From that. That is how God regards us apart from Christ. We should tremble at this. And yet part of the. Part of the horror of the condition of the unbelievers, they don't understand this. They don't acknowledge that this is their condition before God. And we read elsewhere the problem. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Well, we see that here. Matter of fact, Romans three. Verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, when we see that, we can understand then the activity of the pagan Baal worshippers. We are designed to worship. We're hardwired that way. But apart from the converting work of the Holy Spirit, we will worship everything besides Christ. And feel great about it. The verdict of the writer here in our text this morning is blunt and telling. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. This God neither listens nor speaks. Notice verse 30. And Elijah said to the people, come near to me. 
And all the people came near to him after what they had just seen. They had to wonder what he's going to do. I mean, the first one didn't go down very well. Of course, they had become accustomed to seeing that. But one has to wonder if even now in this moment of great test, Baal didn't answer. Of course, he never would have. What was the point of the exercise? It's not like he'd been silent for millennia and now suddenly he's going to say something. If ever there was a grand opportunity for Baal to have shown his quality, that would have been it, wouldn't it? Maybe he was off visiting. You can understand Elijah's irritation. Elijah took 12 stones. We, We read that he rebuilt the altar. Isn't it also telling that Israel had so stooped to the point they had allowed it to fall into such disrepair? You'll recall, even during the time of Nehemiah, remember when the temple was in great ruin. Imagine us with a similar situation, won't you? We come to the point where Sunday morning gathering falls into disuse. We just stop showing up one by one, and eventually the doors are locked for a long time. Inside, things gradually decay. I think that's horrible. We have to come together. Well, of course you think that, because that's, of course, what God's people are made for, for community. We do this. But it's hard to imagine, isn't it? A church just stops meeting. But that, in fact, is essentially what Israel had done. They had stopped having church for a very long time, such that their altar, their stone altars, had fallen into ruin. I mean, you build that thing right, it should stand there for a pretty long time. And yet, their own altars into ruin. They knew better than that. This is showing the the depths that they had descended to. We're not immune to this. So this is a a bit of a wake-up call, even for the church today. We are safe in Christ and we understand that God preserves us so that we will persevere to the end. We can't just sit on our laurels with that and say, well, God's going to work it in me, so I don't need to do anything. We are called. That's why Hebrews reminds us, because we're so given to doing the opposite. He says, don't stop meeting together like some people have done. They've given up on meeting together. Don't be like that. But instead, you keep having church because your spiritual gift isn't for you. It's for the brothers and the sisters. They need what you have. We're to love one another, especially the brothers and sisters. And we show that love by investing in one another with the spiritual gift, for example, that God has given us. And you can't do that sitting at home. That's another lesson. Up to this point, the sacrifices, the two camps had been the same. And now Elijah escalates matters a bit. He has 12 jars of water dumped all over the sacrifice and the wood such that it filled the trenches around the altar. That's what was there to catch the blood. And he's now it's full of water. Seems like he's kind of shot himself in the foot. You don't soak your wood. That's exactly what he did. And he said, do it again. Now do it again. 
And in the blink of an eye, we see in verse 38 how the one true God responded in a decisive blow against the false God Baal. So called the God of thunder. And with he did this without wailing, pleading, self-mutilation in a flash of searing flame. God consumed everything in his path, demonstrating that he alone is the God of heaven and earth. It's telling us it almost seems like hyperbole here. So the fire, verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones. How on earth do you consume stones with fire? That's some kind of hot. I mean, think about it. Remember Daniel and his friends? Fire so bad it consumed the guards when they just got close to it, but the oven stayed intact. These stones didn't. And the stones and the dust burnt up dirt and licked up the water that was in the trench. You recall, as noted earlier, that when God consumed Nadab and Abihu through flame for disobeying his commands, he gave the reason for his judgment. He said this, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people... I will be glorified. That's frightening, people. That's frightening to me. The Lord our God is holy. And he's a jealous God. And he won't share his glory. So we dare not try to snatch it away from him. I will be sanctified, whether by your own hand or by mine. I'll make it happen, he's saying. So in short, we who name the name of the Lord, our God, and who would approach him. We must ascribe holiness and glory to him, evidenced by our attitude and its resultant action. Are we careful to do that? Yeah, we understand There's more grace and mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. He is loving and he's patient. And he works through our weaknesses. Praise his name. But our responsibility before him is not not, no less diminished. What happened next, dear church, is the only appropriate response to having the God who is. Revealed himself tangibly and personally. Notice verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Has that been your experience? Have you been supernaturally introduced to the Lord God in such a way that whether physically or attitudinally, you threw yourself on your face before him? Acknowledging that he, the Lord, and he is God. Well, Philippians 2.10 reminds us that eventually at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. We're going to do it. (laughs) I imagine one day what that will look like. Now, this is, call it artistic license. 
But I imagine when Christ appears just at the name, we understand I've heard it said that at the name of Jesus, what it's saying is it's not the name Jesus, but it actually his title, the Lord, because he, of course, alone holds that title. He is the Lord God, regardless whether it's Jesus or Lord makes a little difference. The effect will be the same. But at the name of Jesus, I imagine it's like this, this supernatural force drives Everyone onto their knees. I just imagine like kneecaps just shattering because we're driven down so hard and fast. There, there's no time to second guess it. There's no time to think about it. It's happening. Now, not to be brutal, I just that's what I envision. That there's going to be no more, no sir, not I. It's going to happen, like it or not. Whether voluntarily or just from the force of Jesus, whammo. I just expect it happening. Well, we all see it differently, don't we? To encounter God in this way must be a terrifying thing, though. Recall Hebrews twelve twenty nine, where we've just told, so having such a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us render to God acceptable worship for the Lord our God is a consuming fire. Boy, Israel just saw that here, didn't they? Consuming fire. Lick up the water, the dirt, the rocks, everything. That's a consuming fire. Imagine this fire before us, so hot, everything just melts. But radiating not so much just the inferno within, but the glory of the God who is. Well, we may look back on these events, particularly verse 40. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. We look at that and we may recoil. Was that necessary? I mean, lock them up. Evangelize something. Kill them. We may look at that, but consider. We don't put quite the premium on truth that God does. We may look back on these events of this incredible day and suppose that Elijah was too harsh in calling for the deaths of these 850 false prophets. Remember, though, how seriously God holds accountable those who rebel against his word and standard. Deuteronomy 13:5 says, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. Henrik says this was not murder, but a commanded purging of moral and spiritual evil. It also served as a powerful reminder that there was no middle ground between God and Baal. All traces of Baal must go. First Corinthians. Five. 12 and 13 say this for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside purge the evil person from among you. This is church discipline here, but you'll notice who judge who's to judge whom it says that God deals with those on the outside, just as he did with these Baal worshipers. Now, that doesn't mean that he did that with those on the outside. So we kill those on the inside. God's business. Notice also, though, 2 Corinthians 
through 16a. We typically read this verse here to be referring to marriage, but I think it's much broader than that. This has to do with our relations uh, in general, whether personally, professionally, whatever. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? This is asked in Greek in such a way that the expected answer is absolutely nothing in each case. So what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Nothing. What fellowship has light with darkness? Nothing. What accord has Christ with Belial or Baal? Nothing. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Nothing. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Nothing. For we are the temple of the living God. Everything that does not have to do with Christ no longer has any place in our hearts. That's not easy. Look, we all have to do what we believe is right with our homes. Okay, it's between you and God. You all have our own standards. I mean, in our house, we have determined for our children certain words that are off the table. We just don't use them. For my kids, stupid and idiot, those are bad words. You don't talk like that. In another home, they'll laugh at that. Are you kidding me? (laughs) That's pretty tame. Well, not in my house. It's not. Does it slip? You bet. We're humans. We're sinful. But we... But we're trying to set a pattern here for our words being seasoned with grace. Right. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. We're told in Ephesians. What's corrupt talk? Well, that's a great word. That's right. Useless is what I'm saying to somebody going to edify them. Is it going to build them up? When we leave someone, we should leave them better than when we found them. Not worse. All traces of godlessness must leave us. It's going to be a lifelong pursuit to root it out. Israel here had become so influenced by the culture, much like Lot did in in Sodom. He'd been there too long. It rubbed off. Look, Christians are supposed to be rubbing off on their unbelieving neighbors, not the other way around. Pitiful testimony, wouldn't you say, when we find that where we're hanging out, the unbelievers are a greater influence on us than we on them. That's why we're told, though, keep yourself unstained from the world. It's because otherwise we would be stained by the world. Keep in mind what was happening in our text here, this teaching that was taking place. And then think of James 3, 1, where he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Who was teaching whom? All right. So here we have it. What I call the tale of two worship services, one false, one true, both fueled by mutually exclusive worldviews. One condemned by God as idolatry and the other one received by God as a fragrant aroma. Think of our Lord's Day worship celebration services, brothers. What kind of sacrifice are we rendering to God? Idolatry. 
or a pleasing aroma. I may be presumptuous, but from what I've observed today, I do believe we've rendered to God a pleasing aroma. God be pleased to accept it. Both adherents have faith. That's not the question. Rather, what was the object of their faith? The former had faith in Baal. And it was a faith misplaced. It could not deliver. It was a dead end street. Romans 10.7 tells us that faith comes by hearing. And that by the word of God. And Hebrews 11.6 reminds us that without faith it's impossible to please God. And then in John 17.3, Jesus now defines eternal life as this. That we know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom God sent. We must have faith. And God has seemed pleased to deliver that faith to his people by means of the proclaimed word. And that that life that he's calling us to is that we would know him, the one true God. Do you? Do you know this God? This God of supreme grace and mercy. We understand that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But that need not be your blood or an animal's blood. That was provided by Jesus Christ. Have you heard God's call? Through his word. Which identifies you as a sinner condemned already as rebellious against God. Has he given you faith to put in his one and only son, Jesus Christ? Call on him today. Today is the day of salvation. As long as you have today, this is the day for it. That he would be merciful to you. Jesus Christ, son of David, have mercy on me. That he may wash you clean from all defilement to be his own. Let's pray. Lord and Master, you've been kind to us. Gracious and merciful, patient, long-suffering towards us. Lord, guard our hearts that we would not entertain, give any service to lesser things than you. Guard our heart from all sin, from all idolatry. Forgive us, make us clean. Restore to us, Father, the joy of your salvation. That we would be fruitful servants, good stewards of eternal life that you have lavished on us. Make us to be a a gracious people, characterized by godliness and great contentment in all that you are. Work your grace in this church, Lord. Would you break hearts where confession is necessary? Would you grant forgiveness? Would you restore? Lord, I pray that your spirit would sweep through this place, bringing conviction of sin and joy with the forgiveness from it, and that you would restore a great joy and a winsomeness among the people here, that they may minister lavishly in this community to your glory, that they would be and remain a faithful steward of the gospel you've entrusted to them. May your word thunder from this pulpit. Lives be changed. Hearts converted. 
May your name be glorified. In Jesus Christ's marvelous name. Amen.